Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to a message from New King Church. We're a church located in South Burlington, Vermont, and our prayer is that this resource would help you find and follow Jesus. If you want to know more about our church and the ministries we have, check us out at newkingchurch.com. So this morning our scripture is in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. When I finish, I will say, this is the word of the Lord. Please respond with thanks be to God. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare holding faith in a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Well, good morning. How are we doing this morning? Good. Um, my name is Ben. If I haven't met you, I would love to meet you before you leave today. I'm married to Tiffany. She just went back with the kids. Uh, we have five kids. Uh, my oldest two are in the back running sound and media, and um, we are blessed. We have two boys, three girls. Uh, it's a there's a lot happening at my house most days. Um, and we're so thankful for that. We're, we're talking about warfare today. And uh, that's, that's the theme of this passage. That's the kind of the grand theme of this message. And it's actually uh, the theme of the Christian life in many ways, and according to the New Testament, whether we realize it or not, we're in a war. Uh, the, the stakes are, are quite high. Um, we are in a battle for our souls and for the souls of men, and we are up against a, a very real enemy. That is the domain of darkness. There's um, there's sin within us that, that seeks to pull us away from the faith. There is uh, a world around us that would love to pull us away from the faith. And there's uh, a real enemy. There are forces of evil at work in this world and in our lives. And so we need to remember that we're in a war, wake up to the fact that we're in a war if we're not awake to that, um, and, and then we need to, to engage in it, right? For a, a soldier to, to go to war, to, uh, to go to the battle lines and, and not realize that they're fighting, it would be a good way to die, right? But Oftentimes we go through our, our lives, we go through days and we go through weeks without even a thought to the fact that we are at war. 
It's a war um, for your faith. In this book, in this letter that we're working through, this letter from Paul to his protege, Timothy, who's a pastor of a church in Ephesus, he tells Timothy in the passage that we are looking at today, wage the good warfare, engage in it, pick up weapons and fight. Later on at the end of this letter, in chapter 6, verse 12, he says, fight the good fight of faith. In his next letter to Timothy, he um, he, tell, he tells him in chapter 2, verse 4, no soldier, well, verse 3, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. And then at the end of that letter, he again brings up this idea of a fight, and here's the way that he puts it. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. That's the fight. When Paul got to the end of his life, what mattered wasn't how big his house was or how far he'd advanced in his career or how much he had in his savings or his reputation or how healthy he stayed until the last day. Or how many possessions he'd accumulated, or whatever else people might live for. What mattered at the end of the day was that he fought to the end, and he still had his faith intact. Amen. That's the fight. And that's what the enemy is going to come at us to try and destroy. Remember, um, remember Peter's biggest failure remember the night that satan came at him with everything he had what was satan's goal for peter we 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 get a glimpse into it in luke chapter 22 verses 31 through 32 when jesus is preparing peter for this attack that's coming and he tells peter satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat but i've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. At the end of the day, this is what Satan wanted in Peter's life, was that his faith would fall apart and crumble, and that Peter would walk away from that night, and his faith would no longer be intact, but Jesus had prayed for him that his faith would not fail. That's the fight. Today we're, we're going to look at this passage. We're going to see three tactics to fighting this fight that you might not think of, that I don't typically think of as go-to tactics. Um, but they're good. So let's pray together before we, before we dig into the passage. Let's ask the Lord to teach us. Father, we come before your throne together, 
through the blood of Jesus that was shed for us, that cleanses us, that, that gives us access to stand in your grace. We come to you and we ask, Father, would you, would you do some supernatural things in our midst? We acknowledge your presence with us here, Holy Spirit. We ask, would you teach us? Would you uh, reveal our own hearts to us? Open us up. Help us to receive from you, to learn, to be challenged, to, to be encouraged. Ultimately, to know how to go from here and wage the good warfare. That our faith would remain to the end. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Three things that we're going to look at today, three tactics that we can learn from this passage to win the war. Number one is don't neglect the crazy. Don't neglect the crazy. Paul tells Timothy in verse 18. He says, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them, by the prophecies, you may wage the good warfare. Uh, that's a little strange. If we step back and just look at it, if we just look at it from our natural perspective, what, do, what, what does a prophecy or prophecies that were made years ago have to do with the fight that I'm in today? Everything. Everything. Um, it sounds a little crazy, but if you're a student of your Bible, crazy won't throw you off. Because, um, at least from our perspective, the ways of God can look a little crazy from our perspective. In Isaiah 55, 8, the Lord says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways. And when it comes to war tactics, God's ways are definitely not our ways. As we read through the Bible, we see this time and time and time and time again. In Exodus, God defeated the entire Egyptian army by luring them into the middle of the Red Sea and then closing it in on them. We get to uh, the book of Joshua, and Joshua leads the Israelites into the Promised Land, and there's this great, well-defended, walled city called Jericho, and you know how God uh, leads them to defeat Jericho? He has them march around the, the city seven times on the last day. March around it for seven days and march around it seven times the last day. That's crazy, it seems. But that's how he did it. When a giant taunted the armies of Israel and no one could defeat him, he sends a shepherd boy with a slingshot. God's war tactics seem crazy to us, don't they? His ways are not our ways, his thoughts are not our thoughts, so don't neglect his ways. In battle, just because they seem crazy to you. Paul tells Timothy, take the prophecies that, that were made about you and use them as weapons of war. 
At the end of uh, another letter of Paul's, he says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 20 and 21, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast to what is good. Why did he tell him don't despise prophecies? Because we have a tendency to do that. <laughs> because we have a tendency to, to look at prophecy down our noses. We have a tendency to laugh at it, to think, what, what, what in the world was that? That was weird. That would never happen. We have a tendency to despise prophecy. Um, but prophecy is a gift from God. And along with the other spiritual gifts, it is a weapon of war if we use it. The weapons of our flesh make sense to us, but they're powerless. Our own tactics and our own strategies, they make plenty sense to us, but they're powerless in this, action, in this real spiritual war that we're in. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 says, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but, but our weapons have divine power to destroy Strongholds. If we use the right weapons, not the ones of the flesh, but the ones that God gives by His Spirit to be used by His Spirit, those weapons, and those weapons alone have power to destroy the enemy's strongholds. And prophecy is one of those weapons. Before we, uh, before we moved here, to Burlington, my brother gave me a prophetic word, and um, he said to me, he said, uh, the Lord showed me that you're going to be, he said, I, I saw you being given a farm, <clears throat> and he said, um, he, he wrote this down, here, I'll quote it, this farm would become a serene, beautiful refuge a place where pastors, leaders, couples, and families will flock not only to heal, but to learn and regain hope and original vision. We, we were not given a literal farm, at least not yet, but three years after this prophecy, we were given a barn along with this whole property. When my brother saw the pictures of the barn for the first time he was speechless he said I saw that and looking around <laughs> this room many of you and, and thinking about many who've been here for a season and have since gone out with a fresh calling on their lives um, I, I can attest to the fact that many have come and God has done a work of healing this has been a place of refuge for you. Many of you have come without much hope left in your heart. And God has restored hope. Many came and you've lost God's vision for your life and you've regained that vision. And many of those that we've sent out, we've sent out because of this very thing. Because they regained a vision, the original vision that God had given them, and the calling on their lives. 
We never sent out to be a refuge where people could heal from church hurts or a refuge where people could regain hope or vision. And yet that's exactly what happened. It's exactly what happened. And remembering that prophecy over these last six years at various points has been an incredible encouragement to me to show me and to remind me that uh, it's New King was not my idea or anyone's idea but God's and that he is building this church in his way in his timing and he will continue to do so and nothing nothing could strengthen my faith more than that and so you see a word of prophecy spoken years ago about seven years ago is still being used as a weapon of warfare in this fight That's, maybe you're sitting here and you think well I don't know I, I, I haven't really operated much in this kind of in the stream of evangelicalism or Christianity that, that, that really does a whole lot of prophesying and I don't really have those and this is all weird to me I sympathize with that. But, um, you know, the, the promises of God in the scriptures are prophetic words for you. And so if, if, if you say, I don't know, I can't really think of a prophecy to cling to that would bolster my faith right now, turn to the scriptures. Turn to the promises of God. And, listen, the Bible encourages all Christians, not just encourages, commands all Christians to earnestly desire the spiritual gifts and especially that you may prophesy. And Paul says that because it is the most, in his eyes, in the Holy Spirit's mind, that is the most encouraging, edifying spiritual gift to the church. That God would, would speak to another person specifically and directly through a person. So if you're not sure what to think about this, study it. Go to 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14 and do a study on this. See what you find. Don't neglect the things that seem crazy to your flesh. This war against darkness, this war, this, this battle for our faith is to be fought with spiritual weapons of warfare. Um, let me give you a few other examples besides prophecy. Do you know what's the most powerful weapon that we have, the most, the most powerful thing you can do in this fight? Kneel. Seems crazy, right? Get on your knees and surrender and pray and cry out to God for help. The most powerful thing you can do in this fight. What are some others? The Bible says, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Just resist him, and he'll flee from you. Quote scripture. How crazy does that sound? You quote scripture, and the Bible says, you are wielding the sword of the Spirit. Read scripture. Read it, and it's like water washing over you and renewing your mind. 
Claim God's promises and you'll have a sure footing for your feet. Remember. What a simple weapon. Remember what God's done in your past and you will believe that He can work in your present. Preach the truth to your own soul. Listen to the Holy Spirit's voice as He leads you into all truth. Believe the gospel. Cling to it with all your might. Trust that the righteousness of God gets applied to us through faith. How awesome is that? So instead of turning to the tactics that make sense to your flesh, turn to the crazy but powerful weapons of warfare given to us by the Holy Spirit. Point number two, I gotta, I gotta get moving because this, this is a big point. Point number two, don't neglect your conscience. Don't neglect your conscience. Look at verse 19. Well, he says in the end of verse 18, wage the good warfare, holding faith. Remember, the, the warfare, the fight, is a fight for your faith. Holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, and that, that word this refers back to the good conscience, some have made shipwreck of their faith. By rejecting a good conscience, some have made shipwreck of their faith. In, in other words, neglecting to keep a good conscience before God is the first step in destroying your faith. Step number one. If you want your faith to erode, you want your faith to fall apart, neglect a good conscience. The conscience is an incredibly important part of our humanity and one that modern people know very little about. I have talked to several believers, mature believers, this week about this idea of the conscience. And, and over and over again, I hear the same thing. I've never heard this before. Not in this depth. Nobody really talks about this. So let's talk about the conscience. Does God's word talk about the conscience? Oh, yeah. The word conscience appears twice in the book of Acts, 20 times in Paul's letters, five times in the book of Hebrews, and three times in 1 Peter. So it's important to God. It shows up four times in this letter, 1 Timothy, alone. Four times. So what is it? So because we were made in the image of God and God is a moral God, as his image bearers, we must be able to make moral judgments. And that's where the conscience comes in. The conscience is that it's a, an internal uh, compass that helps you to discern between right and wrong. And you're born with this. The conscience is a priceless gift from God. I want you to hear that. The conscience is a priceless gift from God. Everyone has one. And it is a gift for your joy. It's a gift for your holiness. Like the sense of touch is given, and if you brush up against a hot stovetop, that sense of 
touch serves as a warning and you instinctively pull back, right? So that you're not harmed. That's, that's what the conscience is. That's what the conscience does. It is, it is given to everyone so that when we sin or when we consider sin, we are meant to instinctively pull back, turn away from that, and turn to Christ. That's what it's for. For those who ignore this God-given gift and never turn to Christ, Romans 2.15 says that their conscience will bear witness against them at the final judgment. Our conscience is a witness. Paul refers to it as a witness multiple times. It's corrupted by sin, by the fall. Um, Titus 1.15 says that our conscience, that before coming to know Christ, our conscience is defiled. Our minds are defiled and our conscience is defiled. It doesn't operate like it ought to. Um, the Bible says that our conscience can be wounded. So when we go against our conscience and choose disobedience, we wound our conscience. We're damaging it. So it can be defiled, it, it can be wounded. If we go on wounding our conscience over and over again, then the conscience can become seared. If you just look over probably a page in your Bible at 1 Timothy 4, Paul says in verse 2 that false teachers... Um, have consciences that are seared. They're, they're seared. It's this picture of being so burned that it's lost all feeling. These, these liars, these deceitful teachers, their conscience doesn't feel anymore. It's seared. And, and to wound the conscience over and over and over again, to ignore the conscience and to go against the conscience over and over and over again is to ultimately numb it, to sear it. I remember, personally, I was thinking back as a young kid, I had a sensitive conscience. All young kids actually do until it gets corrupted. I had a sensitive conscience, and I remember the season of life in sixth grade when I began to listen to the voice of a friend instead of my conscience. I remember, I remember the first time that I chose to ignore my conscience and go against it. And I remember how hard it was, and I remember how heavy the guilt sat on, on me. I mean, like, just heavy. My, my cheeks burned with shame. I, I, I felt it. And then the next time I, I went against my conscience, I felt it a little less. And the, and the guilt and the shame didn't stick around quite so long. And then the next time, I felt it even less. Until <clears throat> by the time I was in high school, I felt almost no guilt and no shame. And my conscience was seared. But, but God. But God through the testimony of my brother who'd recently been saved 
but God reawakened my conscience. And it began, that flame of conscience began to burn again inside me. And I began to, to feel remorse again for the sinful way that I was living. Eventually, that guilt, that awakened conscience, led me to feel my way in the dark for God until I came to an understanding and knowledge of the gospel and I believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I turned to Him in faith and my conscience was cleansed. When we believe the gospel which is the good news that God justifies the ungodly, Romans 4, that he justifies moral failures like me. As a pure act of grace, when we turn from our life of sinning and confess that Jesus really is Lord, and we believe that God sent him to live a perfect life, to die on a cross in our place, and that he raised him from the dead on the third day. When we believe that, he justifies us. He cleanses us from all of our sin. And he cleanses our guilty conscience. Praise God. Peter calls baptism in 1 Peter 3.21 an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Did you know that? So before I go any further, I need to ask you. Have you turned from your life of sin to Jesus and put your trust in Him to receive eternal life? To receive a clear conscience? Have you done that? And if you haven't, why not? If, if you haven't, what would hold you back from receiving this gift? God offers to you the greatest gift imaginable. Peace with Him. Amen. A clear conscience before Him. Holiness imputed to you. Righteousness imputed to you. Forgiveness. A clean slate. He offers to give you His Spirit. What would stop you? Why wouldn't you turn to Him? Why wouldn't you believe? And so if you've yet to do this, I plead with you. Believe. Turn from doing life your way. Turn from your sin and put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ and follow Him and let Him give you a clean conscience. Now, what about those of us who've done that? What about those of us who believed? How do we keep from neglecting our conscience? How do we keep from doing it? First, I'm going to give you a, three practical ways to, to guard your conscience. First, don't ever go against it. Don't ever go against it. There's a passage in 1 Corinthians where... Um, Paul talks about there are those with weaker consciences who don't feel 
a clear conscience eating meat that may have been sacrificed to idols because of the way that they once worshipped idols. Paul is, is saying, you may have a clear conscience about that because you're, you're, you have more knowledge than them, yet you're stronger in your faith than them. Your conscience isn't weak in that area. You may realize that that isn't sinful. But be careful that you don't eat meat sacrifice the idols in front of them, encouraging them to do so without a clear conscience, because if they do so without a clear conscience, it is sin. Even though, technically speaking, they could. If they go against their conscience, it's sin. The Bible teaches it's never right to go against your conscience on something. In Romans 2.15, it talks about the, the, the consciences of unbelievers as a witness, and it says their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So how do you know if your conscience is being stirred up? You probably have conflicting thoughts about something, and you're going back and forth in your head, sometimes saying, yeah, this, is, this would be fine, excusing it. And other times saying, no, I can't do that. That wouldn't be right. You see, and so there's conflicting thoughts, so your conscience isn't at rest, and therefore it would be sin for you to do it. Always err on the side of obedience. Always. Don't neglect to obey your conscience. That's the first application. Second application, let God calibrate your conscience, which... By that I mean, let him align your conscience with his will through his word. So our consciences are, infalli are fallible. God's word is infallible. Your conscience can get it wrong. You can think something is perfectly fine that's actually sin. And so you need to study God's word. You, you need to let God's word calibrate your conscience. As you see something in God's word that brings conviction, let God calibrate your conscience to that. Begin to obey. That's the second principle. Let your, adjust your conscience to agree with God. Third principle, don't wound your conscience by ignoring it. But when you do sin, and you will, and I will, Quickly confess your sin to God and anyone that you sinned against. As Paul says in, in Acts 24, he says, I take great pains to keep a, a clear conscience before both God and man. He, he went to great lengths to keep a clear conscience before God and man. So when you sin, confess your sin to God and anyone you sinned against. So confess it, ask for forgiveness. And let God forgive you. Let him cleanse you. Here's, believe this promise, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let him cleanse your conscience. When we genuinely confess, when we genuinely repent and turn away from our sins the blood of Jesus Christ shed for us on the cross cleanses us and our conscience. Here's what Hebrews 10 
22 says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. So a wounded conscience can and must be restored through confession, through repentance, through belief in the gospel, believing that the blood of Jesus is sufficient to cleanse you from your sin. A good conscience is the soil that good a good conscience is the soil that faith can grow in. And this is why Paul unites holding faith and a good conscience. He's saying if you want your faith to remain, you need a good conscience. If you begin to neglect your conscience and wound it and ignore it, faith will diminish. So, so again, he connects them in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, talking about the qualifications of deacons. In verse 9, he says, they must hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. If they don't have a clear conscience, then their faith is going to diminish. We, just, we know it's coming. It's the, it's the soil that faith can grow in. And for hundreds of years of previous generations, even the secular world has believed this. Or, or outside of the church, the world has believed that the conscience was, was important, that it, it existed, that it should be followed. And um, Martin Luther, the guy who, who brought about the Protestant Reformation roughly 500 years ago, when he when he stood his ground at risk of being burned at the stake for defying the, the Pope, and when he was asked to recant his critiques of the Roman Catholic Church, here, here's what gave him the backbone to stand there at the risk of, of burning alive. You want to you hear what he said? Unless I am convinced by sacred scripture or by evident reason, I cannot recant for my conscience is held captive by the word of God. And to act against conscience is neither right nor safe. It would be more dangerous, he's saying, for me to act against my conscience than for me to be burned at the stake. Wow. wow. So do you think about the conscience. Do you listen to this God-given gift? Do you calibrate it with the word of God and let it be held captive to the word of God? Or do you ignore it? Do you go against it sometimes? Do you wound it and pay no attention? Do you... Let's not neglect a clear conscience in this warfare. It is so important for your faith to remain. Hymenaeus and Alexander apparently neglected this, and it led to the shipwreck of their faith. We know that they became false teachers. Hymenaeus is mentioned in the next letter to Timothy, is teaching that the, the resurrection had already happened. So, so how, did that, how, does, how do you go from a neglected conscience to false teacher? Well, when you neglect the conscience... When you wound your conscience again and again, 
When you fail to repent and confess sins, when you ignore it altogether, it opens you up to deception. Your faith withers and the enemy walks in. It opens you up to deception, which is exactly what happened to these men. So, third tactic to win the war. So don't neglect the crazy, don't neglect your conscience, and don't neglect your cover. Don't neglect your cover. Here's what I mean. Look at the end of verse 19 and verse 20 with me. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. What in the world is he talking about? I have handed them over to Satan. He is referring to what, what we call church discipline. What other people have called excommunication. But it's a practice of a person being removed from fellowship. And it's biblical. Paul does it with these guys. He instructs the church in Corinth to do it with another individual who's living in unrepentant sin in 1 Corinthians 5. Now, side note, there are churches that abuse this and uh, they're domineering and, and they kick people out way too quick and way too often. Um, that's not biblical. There's a process of restoration that, that is gone through before that step and um, there's, there's grace for there's grace it's, it's, this is to be done in an atmosphere of grace and the goal of this is ultimately that person's restoration this is not like just a punishment we, we, we hate them and they're gone forever here's the way that he here's the way that he puts it in 1 Corinthians 5 5 when he's instructing that church to practice this. He says, you are to deliver this man to Satan. Same, same words there. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that, what's the reason? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. This is the hope. This is the goal. And so this is not something that sh should happen all the time. In about 10 years of pastoring, I've... I've had to do this once. Um, this is this is this is practiced when somebody is in a situation where they just they're approached multiple times, and and they're unrepentant. They won't they won't hear it. They they won't turn from their sin or they won't turn from their false teaching. And and so so this is what has to be done in order to preserve the health of the body. And, and it has to be done in order for that person to have the opportunity to repent. That's what, that's what he's talking about. So why did I say don't neglect your cover? Well, if to remove someone from the church is to hand them to Satan. In other words, is to give Satan full access to their lives. Then to remain in the church means that there is a, a level of protection, a covering from Satan's attacks. You following me? 
and this is taught in, in the scriptures. So what, what does that have to do with tactics of warfare? Well, everything, everything. Because there are many Christians who haven't been removed from a fellowship, and yet they're choosing to live outside of one without a covering and, and giving the enemy full access to their lives. The application's not hard for us to see. Membership in a living church you know, a church where Jesus is present, a spirit-filled church, Christ-centered church, membership in a healthy church like that is a covering for us from the spiritual forces of evil that seek to destroy our souls. And so I just want to implore you, if you're not a connected and committed member of this church, be a connected and committed member of some spirit-filled, Christ-centered church. Please, for the sake of your own soul, it is dangerous. It is dangerous to live your life outside of the church of the living God. It, it protects us when we live within it. First Timothy, along with the rest of the scripture, tell us that teaching pastors are placed over churches to guard the congregation from being led astray into deceptive teachings. I mean, this book is all about that, right? Paul saying to Timothy over and over and over again, this is your job, Timothy. Guard the doctrine of the church. Protect them. Confront false teaching. Confront false teachers. He says in, in chapter 4, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourselves and your hearers. You are a guardian You're safeguarding them from deception. Here's what Hebrews 13, 17 says. It says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. They're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. I will have to stand before God for this. That makes me tremble. And then he says, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. The second half of that verse, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, doesn't have anything application to this sermon. I just thought, if you've never heard that, I thought I'd put that out there for you. <laughs> you can see that the church is designed by God to be a place of refuge to be a place of protection, of covering from Satan and his schemes. It's not, just, it's not just church leaders, right? It's not just pastors that are, that are protecting you. It is the congregation itself. The scriptures are full of admonitions for believers to watch each other's backs this is why we need to live in community. You need to live in community so that people can actually see into your life. They can see into your marriage. They can see into your home. You, you need that. It is dangerous to neglect it. Here's what, what happens is when we live isolated from Christian community, we, we get lukewarm. It took me all of about 
eight weeks after the lockdown back in March 2020 to feel my fire just like turn into a barely burning ember. We need each other. Here's what Hebrews 10, 24 through 25 says. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The day is nearer today, the day of Jesus' return. It's nearer today than it was then. It's nearer today than it was yesterday. So if they were being encouraged then to not neglect meeting together regularly, we should probably do so even more today. That's, right? That's pretty clear. We need each other. We need authentic community. We need to live our lives in the light so that others can see, so that others can correct us, so that others can challenge us, so that others can encourage us. So don't neglect the covering that God offers us in the form of membership in a healthy local church. Let me wrap this up. I don't know how long I've been going, but longer than I meant to. We need to first wake up to the war that's being waged all around us. We need to become aware of it or else we won't, we won't engage. We'll leave our weapons sitting on the floor. We need to wake up to it. We need to engage. We need to make war with the weapons that the Spirit gives by the power that the Spirit gives. We need to not despise prophecy or any other tactic of warfare that seems crazy to us. We need to use the weapons of the supernatural weapons of warfare that have been given to us. Those are the weapons that will defeat the enemy. We need to pay attention to our consciences and err on the side of obedience when conflicting thoughts accuse and excuse us. We need not neglect keeping a good conscience because a good conscience is the soil that faith can grow in. And we need to take cover within the safety of a spirit-indwelled, Christ-centered church. So, let's make war, church. Let's make war and let's finish this race. Let's fight the good fight of faith today and every day until we breathe our last so that we can stand before him and hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are with us in this fight. The battle indeed belongs to you. And we, we fight from our knees. <laughs> We fight with prayer. We fight with the sword of the Spirit. We fight with the gifts of the Spirit. We fight in the power of the Spirit, not by might, nor by power, but by your Spirit. We fight. Keep us, Lord. You have kept us, and you will keep us to the end. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.